Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. Talking about book nine, chapter nine. Um, really good summary that I found, actually, before I read the discussion prompts. This is from last year's discussion. User MickIXX said this. There might be a reason for this long list of army parties, so I made a quick list. The army parties summarized. Now, this list pretty much summarizes the whole chapter, so this is a great comment. 1. The military theorists, Fuel and his adherents, chiefly Germans. Um, and I remember there's quite a lot of disdain for the German theorists uh, from the Russians throughout this book. They seem to think that the, the Germans are kind of uh, obsessed with this new science called strategy and that that's a you know silly thing to be obsessed with in wartime uh they think you need you know some strategy but also some like kind of spirit or intuition <clears throat> so they really don't like the germans very much even though they are allies so number 1 the military theorists fuel and his adherents chiefly germans number 2 the bold action warmonger party bagration ermolov and others Number three, the courtiers who wanted a compromise between the first two parties, Arakchiv and civilians. Number four, the peace seekers who feared Napoleon, Savic and co. Five, the adherents of Barclay de Tolly, the minister of war. Six, the adherents of Bennigsen, a German general. They are at odds with the Barclay party. Seven, the die-hard supporters of Emperor Alexander, Generals and Imperial Aides de Camp. Number eight, the ones that only wanted personal gains. That's the majority. And number nine, the ones that want the Emperor to leave the army. The elder and capable men. Which I think we'd have Yakutazov sitting in there. Potentially? Don't quote me on that though. Twisted everywhere, I said, wow. Thank God someone took the time to write that up. My head was spinning reading that chapter. No, now I wonder, what is the reason for explaining all that? I'm assuming that since the army is split into all these factions, the war is not going to start off well for the Russians. Um, Fragrant Squirrel said, thank you for the help on this one. My head was a bowl of mush trying to understand it. Uh, Four Lost Souls in a Bowl said, I think it's worth noting that the third party, the courtiers who wanted a compromise between the first two parties, uh, basically wanted a half an arse to half arse an attack on Napoleon, which would have been much worse than options one and two. Um, Ripster 66 says, This was a hit of a challenge, bit of a hit challenging chapter, but it definitely left me with a sense of how massive the Russian military structure is and how gummed up it is with men only seeking their own advancement. According to Tolstoy, the majority of these men aren't working towards a common goal at all, and are willing to say anything to get what they want for themselves. Not a great way to run an army. All these factions and all these drones motivated by personal interest makes it seem like this army is going to take forever to get anything accomplished. Alright, I'm not even going to read the discussion prompts today. I think because, well, that summary comment really did summarize the chapter.
it was long, it was tedious, it was arduous, and I think we're all ready to keep reading. So, let's just plow through, hey? I want to get to, you know, this, this book works in peaks and valleys. You get exciting chapters, you get a bunch of them. Then sometimes you've got to make your way through, you know, five or six slow chapters. We're at ten. This is our tenth chapter so far in book nine. And book nine, on the whole, I reckon, has been pretty slow. So, we'll be out the other end of it soon. Let's just keep chugging away. Chapter 10 goes like this. This letter had not yet been presented to the Emperor when Barclay, one day at dinner, informed Bolkonsky that the Sovereign wished to see him personally, to question him about Turkey, and that Prince Andre was to present himself at Bennington's quarters at six that evening, News was received at the Emperor's quarters that very day of a fresh movement by Napoleon which might endanger the army, news subsequently found to be false, and that morning Colonel Michaud had ridden round the Drissa fortifications with the Emperor and had pointed out to him that this fortified camp, constructed by fuel and till then considered a chef chef d'oeuvre, Um, of tactical science which would ensure Napoleon's destruction was an absurdity threatening the destruction of the Russian army. Prince Andre arrived at Benningson's quarters, a country gentleman's house of moderate size situated on the very banks of the river. Neither Benningson nor the emperor was there but Chernyshev, the emperor's aide-de-camp, received Bolkonsky and informed him that the emperor accompanied by General Benningson and Marquis Polucci had gone a second time that day to inspect the fortifications of the Drissa camp, of the suitability of which serious doubts were beginning to be felt. Chernyshev was sitting at the window in the first room of a French novel with a French novel in his hand. This room had probably been a music room. There was still an organ in it, on which were some rugs piled, and in one corner stood the folding bedstead of Benningson's adjutant. This adjutant was also there and sat dozing on the rolled-up bedding, evidently exhausted by work or by feasting. Two doors led from the room, one straight on into what had been the drawing room, and another on the right to the study. Through the first door came the sound of voices conversing in German and occasionally in French. In that drawing room were gathered by the Emperor's wish not a military council, the Emperor preferred indefiniteness, but certain persons whose opinions he wished to know in view of the impending difficulties. It was not a council of war, but as it were a council to elucidate certain questions for the emperor personally. To this semi-council had been invited the Swedish general Armfelt, Adjutant General Walsingen, Winton Zergerod, whom Napoleon had referred to as a renegade French subject, Michaud, Toll Count Stein, who was not a military man at all, and Fuel himself, who, as Prince André had heard, was the mainspring of the whole affair. Prince André had an opportunity of getting a good look at him, for Fuel arrived soon after himself, and in passing through the drawing room stopped a minute to speak to Chernyshev. At first sight, Fuel, in his ill-made uniform of a Russian general, which fitted him badly like a fancy costume, seemed familiar to Prince André, though he saw him now for the first time. There was about him something of Weirother, Mack and Schmidt, 
and many other German theorist generals whom Prince Andre had seen in 1805, but he was more typical than any of them. Prince Andre had never yet seen a German theorist in whom all the characteristics of those others were united to such an extent. Fuel was short and very thin but broad-boned, of coarse, robust build, broad in the hips and with prominent shoulder blades. His face was much wrinkled and his eyes deep-set. His hair had evidently been hastily brushed smooth in front of the temples, but stuck up behind in quaint little tufts. He entered the room, looking restlessly <clears throat> and angrily around, as if afraid of everything in that large apartment. Awkwardly holding up his sword, he addressed Chernyshev and asked in German whether where the emperor was. One could see that he wished to pass through the rooms as quickly as possible, finish with the bows and greetings, <clears throat> and sit down to business in front of a map where he would feel at home. He nodded hurriedly in reply to Chernyshev and smiled ironically on hearing that the sovereign was inspecting the fortifications that he, Fuel, had planned in accord with this theory. He muttered something to himself abruptly and in a bass voice, as self-assured Germans do. It might have been stupid fellow, or the whole affair will be ruined, or something absurd will come of it. Prince Andre did not catch what he said, and would have passed on. But Chernyshev introduced him to fuel, remarking that Prince Andre was just back from Turkey, where the war had terminated so fortunately. Fuel barely glanced, not much not so much at Prince Andre as past him, and said with a laugh that must have been a fine tactical war, and laughing contemptuously went on into the room from which the sound of voices was heard. Fuel, always inclined to be irritably sarcastic, was particularly disturbed that day, evidently by the fact that they had dared to inspect and criticise his camp in his absence. From his this short interview with Fuel, Prince Andre, thanks to his Austerlitz experiences, was able to form a clear conception of the man. Fuel was one of those hopelessly and immutably self-confident men, self-confident to the point of martyrdom, as only Germans are, because only Germans are self-confident on the basis of an abstract notion, science, that is, the supposed knowledge of absolute truth. A Frenchman is self-assured because he regards himself personally, both in mind and body, as irresistibly attractive to men and women, an Englishman is self-assured as being a citizen of the best organised state in the world, and therefore, as an Englishman always knows, that he should do what he should do, and knows that all he does as an Englishman is undoubtedly correct. An Italian is self-assured because he is excitable, and easily forgets himself and other people. A Russian is self-assured just because he knows nothing and does not want to know anything, since he does not believe that anything can be known. The German's self-assurance is the worst of all, stronger and more repulsive than any other, because he imagines that he knows the truth, the science, which he himself has invented, but which is for him the absolute truth. Fuel was evidently of that sort. He had a science, the theory of oblique movements deduced by him from the history of Frederick the Great's wars, and all he came across in the history of more recent warfare seemed to him absurd and barbarous, monstrous collisions in which so many blunders were committed by both sides that these wars could not be called wars, they did not accord with the theory, and therefore could not serve as material for science. In 1806, Fuel had been one of those responsible for the plan of campaign that ended in Jena and Orstar, but he did not see the least proof of the fallibility of his theory in the disasters of that war. 
On the contrary, the deviations made from his theory were, in his opinion, the sole cause of the whole disaster, and with characteristically gleeful sarcasm, he would remark, There, I said the whole affair would go to the devil. Fuel was one of those uh, theoreticians who so, so love their theory that they lose sight of the theory's object, its practical application. His love of theory made him hate everything practical, and he would not listen to it. He was even pleased by failures, for failures resulting from deviations in practice from the theory only proved to him the accuracy of his theory. He said a few words to Prince Andre and Chernyshev about the present war, with the air of a man who knows beforehand that all will go wrong and who is not displeased that it should be so. The unbrushed tufts of his hair sticking up behind and the hastily brushed hair of his temples expressed this most eloquently. He passed into the next room and the deep, querulous sounds of his voice were at once heard from there. That is the end of chapter 10. Thank you for listening to that. You are awesome at listening. I'll see you tomorrow.